Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with New York Times bestselling author David Baldacci and discuss his recent book, A Gambling Man, and a Lucius Archer thriller. The Associated Press calls David Baldacci a master storyteller. A Gambling Man is the next in the Archer thriller series, a follow-up to the Nero award-winning thriller One Good Deed. Set in the 1950s, the protagonist has been to war, to prison, and wants to learn how to be a private investigator. So he hops a bus to California to learn from the best a legendary private eye and former FBI agent named Willie Dash. He lands the job and immediately finds himself in the thick of a potential scandal, a blackmail case involving a wealthy, well-connected politician running for mayor that soon spins into something even more sinister. And as bodies begin falling, Archer and Dash must infiltrate the world of brothels, gambling dens, drug operations, and long hidden secrets, descending into the rotten bones of a corrupt town that is selling itself as the promised land but might actually be the road to perdition and Archer's final resting place. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. I really enjoyed reading it. I want to get this one question out of the way because as a recovering trial lawyer myself of 35 years, um, you know, since you were a lawyer for about nine years before you started this, uh, and since you've written a gazillion books, I think that's the, the exact number, a gazillion books, do you miss the legal work at all? <laughs> You know, it was it was challenging and it was exhilarating. Um, wore you down, certainly. I mean, I, I tell people, lawyers, the only way they make money is selling little bits and pieces of their life. You know, at thirty minute allotments. 
Um, I do go back and you know visit some of the people I used to work with because I always found them just you know, highly intelligent, very interesting, curious about things. I do. I don't miss having to work for somebody else for a living. I don't miss having to deal with clients and you know some partners, and I don't miss you know having to deal with the guys on the other side of a court. Because uh, you know, I remember in the I, I did a lot of my work in the federal court, Eastern District of Virginia, the rocket docket. And we, we started like turning our fax machine off at 6, 6 p.m. because people would try to sneak in motions after that, you know, for the next day. And it was just a grind. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. And just, you know, it, it, with all the my lawyer friends that are listening that are hoping to get out of that grind and get into writing something, uh, what did you have to unteach yourself from being a lawyer to being a writer? <laughs> well, I've been writing for a long time since uh, before I was a lawyer. I started writing short stories when I was in high school. Uh, I wrote screenplays, um, novellas, anything really you could write. I was always interested in that. I couldn't make a living doing it. And I, when I was in college, I thought, okay, I have to do something to, to earn a living. Going back home was not an option. So I sort of wrote down on a piece of paper what I thought I was good at. I like to write, obviously. I like to research. I love history. I love to stand on my feet and, you know, argue. And those all seem to be attributes a lawyer would have. So I took the LSAT, applied to law school, went to UVA, enjoyed it immensely. Um, it was tough, but I just it was very challenging. So as, as a lawyer, you know, um, all I had in my quiver were words, you know, and much like a writer does. And as a lawyer, I would work on cases and deals, you know, years at a time. So that was not daunting for me. And as a lawyer, uh, you all know this. The trial record is the trial record. So you're two sides are arguing diametrically opposed positions based on the same set of facts. So how do you do that? And the way you do that is to argue persuasively, highlight the facts that help your client, you know, tend to sort of downplay the ones that don't help your client. But you stand up and you write or you talk and you tell a story <clears throat> that is convincing to a judge or a jury. And as a writer, those are sort of the same things that you actually do. So it wasn't so much unlearning what I learned as a lawyer. It was sort of transferring a lot of what I had learned as a lawyer, particularly the discipline and working on a project for years at a time and understand that it's small steps and you can't do it all at once. Uh, those were things that actually helped me. Yeah, of course. But now you get to create and control the conflict, right? It doesn't control you. But I absolutely do. And I, nobody can tell me what I have to write. I write what I want. <laughs> Exactly. We're going to be talking about that today with your latest book, uh, A Gambling Man, which I really enjoyed reading. It's, it's a fast read. And uh, I, I just want to say, while we're talking about lawyers, I can see that you uh, actually still enjoy poking a little fun at your former profession because there's a scene where Archer's speaking to a guy that gets roughed up early in the book. And Archer says, so what do I want? And the man says, a good time with no duty is a pertinent there too. And Archer says, a pertinent? And you sound like a lawyer. They run second to last in popularity with me to undertakers. And it's a long way up from there. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a lot of fun writing that line. And I do poke fun because I'm poking fun of myself because, I, you know, I was one of those for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And for the listeners, I don't think you need any introduction, but you're a global number one bestselling author. You've your books, uh, you know, 45 languages, you know, 80 countries, 130 million worldwide sales and your civic work, too. I found this interesting, uh, David, you and your wife have founded this uh, foundation, the Wish You Well Foundation. And I looked on the website. I was kind of amazed at the number of uh, the stats you have there of the number of people that uh, deal with illiteracy in the U.S. Can you speak to what you do there? Yeah, it is a staggering number. And I sort of cut my teeth on literacy when I first started touring. There's a lot of the places that would 
sponsor my events as a new writer were libraries, friends of the library, literature organization. So I got a crash course in how, you know, desperate the situation here is in the wealthiest country on earth, where you have basically half the adult population that read at very low levels of literacy. And that translates into every aspect of your life. You know, you're never going to be able to reach your potential economically or socially. <clears throat> you're not going to be able to be a good citizen in the democracy. You can't process all the information you need to understand the issues and make good choices of the ballot box. Um, and it permeates from generation to generation to generation. If you're, the parents are illiterate, the odds that your children are going to be very low literacy learners is very high. So that and illiteracy and poverty go hand in hand. And so that challenge goes across generations and generations. And the Wish You Well Foundation, we fund literacy programs and initiatives across the country. We fund programs in pretty much all 50 states and counting pump millions of dollars into it, trying to get people to break out of that cycle of illiteracy and poverty. And we've helped millions of people along the way and we'll continue to do so. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to give back, particularly now that you're, you know, very much embedded in the writing world to do, do that. Well, let's talk about uh, th these fun characters here. Um, uh, Lucius Archer, in One Good Deed, that was the first uh, book in this series, uh, you introduce us to this character. He's a straight-talking former World War II soldier. He's fresh out of prison in that first book. First thing I want to know is, where did you come up with this name, Lucius? <laughs> yeah, so I, I've... Um, I've always loved the name Archer. I've used the name Archer in a book years and years ago as a last name for a woman, actually. Um, Aloysius is just, you know, a name that you almost never hear anymore. Uh, but, um, you know, my, my kids went to Catholic school. You know, we, they learned a lot about saints and stuff. And that name is always stuck in my mind. <clears throat> it was just different enough. But it's also unusual enough that he always tells people to call him Archer because people just can't get that name. They just can't get Aloysius. Um, so it just hit me, you know, and, and the, the name for, for him was really easy. I just came right out. I wrote right, right down. I never hesitated with that. I was never going to be Ben or Frank or Bill. Uh, it was always going to be Alvarez. Yeah. And he has a little fun, you know, just call me Archer. Don't, don't try to work. And I, I even mispronounced the name. So, but talk a little bit about what attracted you to Archer enough to want to bring him back for this next book. I first conceived of Archer I, a few, couple of years ago. I was in Toronto in the middle of a snowstorm and book tour in the, in the winter. And I'd gotten back from my daily activities, publicity and, and signings. I'm sitting in my hotel room and I thought, you know, I love crime noir. I love the 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm a big Raymond Chandler fan, a huge Ross McDonald fan. Um, and I thought, I'm going to write a, a short story with this guy, Aloysius Archer. You know, he's going to be ex-vet, ex-con, going to get into a spot of trouble. I'll have a little bit of fun with it. Maybe they'll publish it in an ebook only, whatever. So I started, you know, delving to that world. And literally within two and a half months, I had written 400 pages. And it went far beyond a short story novella. And it was because I think I was so deeply embedded and immersed and just in love with that time period. It was uh, post-World War II. The United States was changing dramatically. Everybody was sick of the Depression. They were sick of economic devastation. They were sick of a world war. They were sick of rationing. And they just, a lot of them picked up their roots and moved. And a lot of them moved west looking for a new life. And so that really, he symbolized that sort of, you know, lust for something new and fresh and better. And uh, that all came down to, okay, then what I'm, I'm going to do with this guy. Obviously, he was going to end up being a gumshoe at some point. Because, you know, I wanted to be, you know, in the, in the, in the stands there with Philip Marlowe and Lou Archer. Um, and it was just an exciting time. And I, I always gauge how much I'm into a character by how fast I write the books. And based on that, I was really, really into Archer. Yeah. Well, it's fun. I, one of the things I, I wrote down here to ask you about was the language of the day, because you mentioned gumshoe. 
Uh, there are a couple of scenes here. I'm just going to give it. So the stick man at the roulette wheel, he says, it's time for your bottle of milk, Junior. I mean, th those are not things you hear <laughs> in this day and time. And then the thugs, this ain't your business, buddy. Shut your trap. You know, well, nobody says shut your trap anymore. So I'm just wondering. And, and then pop culture, you got a little thing. Callahan and Archer are talking about George Burns and Gracie Allen. And he doesn't know why Gracie always outsmarts George, to which she says, well, they just want to keep it realistic, Archer. <laughs> so, so. I'm just curious because, uh, you know, and then the word Seamus comes up and then the songs that uh, Liberty Callahan, I love the name there. We'll talk about her in a second. She auditions at Midnight Moods, at Boogie Wiggle Bugle Boy, uh, that old black magic. And then they're smoking camels and lucky strikes and the cops. Uh, this is one of my favorite lines. Pickett was so far up Armstrong's ass, you couldn't even see his wingtips. <laughs> you know, so I, I, may, I'm, I jotted all these down as I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, okay, how do you, how does a writer and author put themselves back into that time period with that language? Did you kind of immerse yourself? Did you go somewhere and start trying to get these words in your head? Because it doesn't actually, it doesn't flow off, you know, like, like your other books. No, absolutely not. And I, I sort of had to relearn or learn a language that was around when I wasn't even born at that time. What really helped me though, was that I had read considerably in that time period in that in those genres and i've watched movies some of my favorite movies are from there the big sleep chinatown so that language wasn't as hard for me to grasp because i'd sort of read about it for you know 30 years of my life um but somebody asked me this question too how do you sort of build that world and i said let's just take it you know let's make it simple so how, what do i need to know in order to build this world you know in the late 1940s early 1950s and at first i thought okay here's what i'm going to do the guy, Archer, is asleep and he wakes up. I'm going to walk him through a day and all the stuff he encounters and has to deal with during the course of the day. That's what I need to learn. You know, so if I can fill up a day of his life, setting him in the late 1940s, and all of a sudden that directed me to, OK, back then, what does somebody do when they get up? What do they you know, where do they go and shower? What sort of toiletries do they use? What sort of clothes do they wear? Where are they going to eat? What are they going to pick up their first cigarette of the day? Where do they shop? You know, where do they go get gas? How do they get from A to B? And if you put it that simply, sort of tracing one day in the life of a character, all of a sudden your battle plan for the research fills out sort of naturally. And you get to fill in all those things because then day after day after day, you kind of know what they need to do and what you need to know in order to write those characters. Um, so that really helped me by simplifying it. Look, you can overwhelm yourself by jumping into this and going, oh, my God, you know, I need to know 12,000 different things to write this book. And then you end up not writing a word because you're paralyzed with anxiety mm -hmm. and fear. But if you simplify it saying, just let me have a day in the life of this guy and that will tell me all I need to know. Well, as I read the book, it seemed like, you know, when they moved from Reno and they get uh, out to the West Coast, it was almost as if you were getting more comfortable with the language the closer you got you know, to Baytown because, you, you know, with the conversations with Willie Dash and Archer and everything, it just started to seem like it was rolling at that point, you know, the, the language for you. So uh, is that how it works for you when you're writing as you, as you pick up speed, you know, things just become more natural to you in, in the particular world you've adopted? Yeah, I think that it's akin to, you know, if you're an actor or you're on, on a, in a stage play, um, the more you get into the character, the more deeply you get into the story, the more comfortable you get with your surroundings and the people you're dealing with. Um, the more the more easily it comes for you. And I also think it was because I knew that they were going to start in Reno and they, they were going to have this journey, he and Liberty together, getting to Baytown on the West Coast. And I was anxious to get to the West Coast. <laughs> While I was writing that journey, 
and my mind, all this stuff was percolating that as soon as they got there, I was going to hit the ground running. I knew what da who Dash was going to be and he was going to have an immediate impact. As soon as he, he appeared on the page, he sort of captured it. And I was so anxious to get there. So when I got there, I felt like I was fully loaded for bear. Well, I, you know, I had a question about why you just didn't start in Baytown, but then when I thought more about it, I think it might have something to do with what I'm going to ask you about now. There's this sort of a iconic, uh, tan tangible thing in the book here. It, it has four wheels, uh, and it moved these two characters from Reno to Baytown. Let's talk about uh, what what appears on the cover of the book here. The uh, I'm not going to pronounce the the name of the car, and it's a French car. Tell us tell us the name of it. Yeah, it's it's a 1939 Delahaye. Uh, it's okay, a big car. Um, and that car came about because um, we spend the winters in, in uh, Florida. Um, that's where I am right now. And um, they have a car show down here every year. And last year, COVID wiped all that out. But a couple of years ago when I was writing, um, before I was going to write A Gambling Man, I went to one of the car shows. And I never buy anything. I just go, I like old cars. You know, and there's lots of old cars down there. So um, there was a Delahaye. It was a not this exact model, but I was like, God, that is a beautiful car. I've never heard of a Delahaye before. And uh, so I went and started researching it, and I found the one that's in the book. It's a Model 165. Uh, it's a Cabriolet model, blood red. It's a gorgeous car. De Delahaye, was a, he was an engineer, um, and he built the guts of the car. Back then, every, you know, the engineers, they would build the guts of the car, the engine, the transmission, all the stuff that made it go. None of these guys knew anything about design. So they offloaded the design of the car to Italians who knew everything about design. So the Italians are the one, they're the ones who are responsible for the exterior of the car, the teardrop fenders and all that. And I thought, <clears throat> I'm going to give Archer this signature car because um, two, two reasons why they went, they went from Reno to Baytown. One was the car. Um, two And two was he and Liberty needed to have some time together alone right. uh, and bond and sort of develop that relationship because that was really important later on in the book. Yeah. Well, there's a paragraph, I think it's on about page 44 of the advanced reader copy I have here that describes the car. Um, it starts with Archer eyeing the long hood. Could you just read that paragraph? That'll give us a sense of what we got here. Sure. Archer eyed the long hood, which ended in a shiny grill that ran from top to bottom on the front of the vehicle like a knight's metal vestments. Its front and rear fenders looked like waves crashing on a beach and enormous teardrop-shaped pearls, respectively. There were slashes of chrome trim on the sides and running along the bottom of the chassis. It rode so low that it could see only the bare bottoms of the white wall tires. <laughs> I loved it. And when I read this at first, I loved the uh, metaphor, the Knight's metal vestments. And I'm just wondering, you know, that's not the way lawyers talk. Uh, did you have to... Did, did you have to learn this over time, the description of things? Uh, it, it, it probably comes more naturally to you now, but uh, that is something I think a lot of authors, first-time authors struggle with. They think about plot, they think about a story, but the actual description is sometimes harder. It, it absolutely is. Same thing with similes and metaphors and all that. And here, here's how you get to that level. And this is something that all writers need to understand. You need to keep reading and reading and reading lots of things your entire life. The more you know, all of a sudden, these unique sort of bits and phrases come more easily. So I could, you know, I love history. I've read lots about, you know, uh, medieval history and knights and the round table and, and myths and legends and all that and what they wore back then, which allowed me to take a term, you know, knight's vestments and transfer it to a description that involved a car. Um, the more you fill up lots of different knowledge bases and pots in your in your life, 
all of a sudden you can you know pick and grab from those pieces and put together descriptions like that. If you don't have that knowledge base, they're never going to come. So I try to read about lots of the diverse and discrete different types of subjects, knowing that at some point in time, those are going to meld together into language that I can use in books that will describe things in a vivid way. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I think Archer spoke about that paragraph you just read, probably the way you felt about it when you looked at it at the car show. He said, it looks, and then he paused, more like a dream than a car. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I thought, too, when I saw it. It, it really it was just a marvel. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I ever thought about driving around. It was something that I just thought about sitting and looking at for a while. <laughs> well, you know, and also the steering wheels uh, on, on, the, uh, on the right, right side. side. And that got to be a discussion because the French had made it supposedly, but apparently the Italians, oh, well, anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> well, they had made it for, they had made it for an Englishman. Oh, okay, okay. Right. So they were, it had to be on the right side in order for the person okay. to there. All right, well, let's do this. A little bit about the characters, a little bit about the setting and the story itself. Uh, t two names. Uh, we've already talked about Archer. Uh, Liberty Callahan. I love this. This is his sidekick. She is a very... Uh, attractive woman, uh, but she's also got a stern backbone, and that that comes to to the light on the trip from Reno out to you know to the West Coast. But tell us about Liberty. Yeah, she is an aspiring actress. Um, he met her in like a, a dining theater in Reno, where she was a dancer and a singer, a hoofer on the stage, and they hook up through a series of things in the book. Um, and she wants to. She has a dream too. I sort of wanted to match them. Uh, he has an aspiration to be a detective. She has an aspiration to be an actress, you know, something more than she is right now. And she wants to work towards that. That's the reason why they're heading to the West Coast. That's where L.A. and Hollywood is. Mm -hmm. so I really wanted them to be of equal stature. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time working on her character as well and giving him depth. Um, she is my idea of what, you know, women represent. I don't write about damsels in distress. I never met one in my whole life, so I wouldn't know what they look like. So Liberty can punch above her weight and punch right along with the guys. She doesn't take crap from anybody. Um, she knows the world is weighted against her and against all women back then. Uh, she knows it's not fair. It just, they just have to work harder. And even if they do, it may not pan out. Uh, but she, I, what I like about her is she knows how the world is built and she uses all of her time and energy figuring out how to get what she wants within the scope of that world. Yeah, I also like the way that she can make Archer blush, you know. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she's, she's very direct. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we have uh, Willie Dash. Uh, I think uh, of all the names in the book, I love that name the best, Willie Dash. How did that come to you? Again, you know, that name came to me immediately. As soon as I started yeah. about his character, it was Willie Dash. Uh, I wanted to be short and punchy and different. And the dash just sort of struck me because it's energetic, forward moving, and that's what he is. Um, and I, my goal with dash was as soon as he appeared on the page, I wanted them to sort of cap capture that page and people would focus totally on him. Yeah. And his sign on his door says, not private investigations, but very private investigations. <laughs> so that tells us a little bit of something about the mindset of Willie Dash, right? Yeah. Uh, he is. Yes. He's, he's a guy who's been around the block. He used to work for the Bureau of Investigations, which was the predecessor to the FBI. Um, he's seen it all. Um, he knows. But at the same time, this is how he makes his living. Um, you know, he has billboards around town that shows him, you know, when he was 20 years younger and he likes to ride around town to look at them to see that he looked a lot better back then. Um, but he's a guy who knows the real world. He knows he has to make a living. 
But the drive behind him is that he loves what he does, you know, and he understands people. Um, and he's a great, great mentor for Archer. Yeah. And there's a saying, it just dialogue, there, there's a blackmail scheme they find about, about early on. And Archer asked him, but what, do we, what if we find the blackmailer? What can we really do? He says, dirt, Archer. It sticks both ways, like you said. And I've never met anyone who didn't have something they'd prefer other people didn't know. <laughs> That's the mindset of Willie Dash. He can, he's going to flip that blackmail and turn it around. So, so it works, works to their side. Yes. Uh, all right. Every book's got to have, have an antagonist, uh, an evildoer, a bad guy, whatever you want to call him. And you got Sawyer Armstrong. Now, that name just speaks to someone who's going to cut right down the middle of things and with a big old arm hold, you know, take over the town, right? Absolutely. And and that's exactly what this guy was. He um, And back then, you know, uh, small towns like that tended to be dominated by families uh, who had come in and taken advantage of whether it was shipping, lumber, mining, whatever. And they kind of owned the town. You know, you see a lot of coal mining communities. And he was a guy who <clears throat> he would never have enough. You know, it wasn't so much about the money for him. It was about the thrill and the exhilaration of actually acquiring that money and that power. Um, and he had dark secrets as well. And again, the name Sawyer Armstrong, did it? that took me like two seconds to come up with. I, I don't know what it was with this book, but Liberty Callahan, bang. Willie Dash, bang. Sawyer Armstrong, just boom. As soon as I thought of his character, that was the name, you know. And yeah. It just seemed to fit. It was different, but it was blunt. Um, and he liked putting his name on things. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, and the setting, I, I, oftentimes I'll, I'll, I'll see the setting and I'll go, okay, I'm going to go find out where this place is and a little bit about it. So what do I do? I Google Baytown and then uh, I'm, I'm trying to, and then I'm Googling the Channel Islands. I'm figuring out where they are and then I'm really getting confused. So tell us about the setting. Here. Yeah. If you want, there's no actual Baytown. Right. I figured that out eventually. <laughs> There's a, you know, when when Chandler was writing, he would use the name Bay City, which is also not a town. Uh, if you want a geographic similarity, you know, uh, sort of a marker for you, Santa Barbara would certainly work. Um, it's about, you know, 70, 80 miles north of Los Angeles, right on the coast. So in that in that same area. Um, and it's a place where I didn't want to have a real town because if I did that, then I'd get emails from people saying, oh, that's, that store's not on that corner or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I didn't want to hear it. So I came up with my own town because I wanted to put the pieces where they needed to be. I knew that I wanted it to be on the water for various reasons that were important to the plot. Um, and it was just, it was great for me to be able to sort of construct this because I wanted to make this town, you know, under the thumb of one family, one man in general. But I also wanted to give it some pieces that I thought were important for the scope of the plot. Yeah, no, it was good. I, at first, I thought maybe that was an earlier description of what they called the law, you know, the uh, San Francisco area, um, you know, Baytown. A good take there. Uh, but you talk about it being a false paradise, uh, which in, in a way it was because, you know, we had the I love the midnight moods <laughs> yeah. for, for a description for a gentleman's club, you know? So, and that's where all the bad guys, you know, were hanging out and everything. All right, let, let's do this. Um, in the few minutes we have left, I usually talk a little bit writing life with authors. Uh, you've written a lot of books. Um, how many books are you up to now, David? I think um, with the one that's going to come out in um, spring uh, with a gambling man, I think that's number 50. Okay, uh, great. Adult and, and young adult. So, um, you know, I, this is this is what I love to do, you know, and, and I just uh, don't see another future for me other than this. What's the most number of books you released in a year? Uh, three. 
Right. And that was the year that One Good Deed came out. I, I wrote One Good Deed, as I said, when I was sitting up in Toronto. My publisher, my nobody knew I was even writing this book. So I wrote it in a couple of months and sent it up to people. And they were like, oh, my God, where did this come from? And so they slotted it into the summer. So I had a spring book, a summer book, and a fall book. Um, that's I think that's my limit. I don't write with other people. I don't People don't ghostwrite my books. It's just me. And uh, there's no way I'm going to be writing three books a year. Two books is, is a lot of work since yeah. I myself, but that's the most I've ever done in a year. And I was going to ask, did you bounce between series or when you get to a series, do you like to write another book right after the f first book in the series? And I guess a follow-up to that is with so many series, how do you keep the characters straight in your head? <laughs> I know. <clears throat> well, luckily, you know, I, I created them. So it's not like I wouldn't forget you know, sure. kids and all that, but you're absolutely right about the series. When you try to establish a series in a reader's mind and, and build an audience, it is important to have a book come out on a regular basis. So I knew like with Amos Decker or Adley Pine or Aloysius Archer, <clears throat> that I needed to be consistent in publishing those books. It wasn't, I wasn't going to wait two or three years in between books. So I tried to slot them so that <clears throat> that audience would build and that character would become familiar and resonate with them. So it is important that, um, I keep in mind that with my publishing schedule that I have to make sure that I give time for those characters as I build that audience. And you mentioned Amos Decker. I really enjoyed the Memory Man series. I can't, uh, Davis, hard for me to keep up with, uh, you know, the number of books you put out and reading while I was practicing law, but I did read the Mem uh, Memory Man, the first in the series, and I read another one in that series. And then I jumped over and I read John Puller, who's the combat veteran and the best, you know, the he's a military investigator. I'm just thinking, man, you're, you're, you're writing faster than I can keep up reading when I've got a real, real job here. <laughs> I know. I, I know. It, well, I, I devote, you know, my entire life to it. And yeah. I'm a writer that when I finish a book, it's not like I, I'm relieved and I want to go off and do something fun. I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I, what's next? <clears throat> you know, yeah. I just jump right back into it. It's, it's an obsession with me. It's not so much a job or an occupation. It's just more of an obsession. So two things jumped out at me on the advanced reader copies here. When I look at the back, the acknowledgments, I think you must mention 75 to 100 people's names in your acknowledgments. And it just made me start to think about how, you know, some people might figure that writing and publishing is a solitary uh, venture, but it sounds like it takes a lot of people to do what you what you do. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. You know, I sometimes I tell my publishers, you know, that I have the easy job. I just have to write the stories. Then you have all of these people that have to, their job is to take what I've written and deliver it to the rest of the world. Um, and that takes a lot of really highly talented, highly specialized, highly motivated people. And I thank them in the acknowledgments, everybody from the people who actually, you know, print the books, the people who deliver the books, people to publicize the books, market the books, people who get, you know, other readers interested uh, who, you know, can build audiences for me around the world. Um, and it takes a lot of people in order to do that, particularly in an age now where there's so much competition, not just from other books, but just from the, you know, the internet, smartphones, video, stream, mm -hmm. TikTok, TikTok, you know, apparently we want human beings to only be entertained in 30 second allotments. That's great for a novelist, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, and, and I, and I always thank these people in every book just because I know how vital they are to what I do. The other thing I saw on the inside cover is talking about the uh, the marketing plans, the national advertising campaign, the radio satellite tour, the all the review. So how much of that uh, occupies your time, David? And how do you balance that between your writing uh, life and your promotional life? 
So I have to pick my battles on that. And like the, the promotional campaigns and all that, I get involved that only to the extent that um, if I'm going to be touring that year with COVID, I haven't been. So I, I'll pick the places I want to go. And they send me a spreadsheet every year when I was touring with all like 300 places that want me to come. I can't go to 300 places. And they haven't even split out. Like, here's how many people are going to be there. Here's how many books we're going to sell. Please come. So I'll pick a few from there that maybe I try to rotate places I haven't gone for a while. But the rest of the stuff, like the digital campaigns and where they're going to place the ads and all that, I don't really, I leave that up to them. They know that better than I do. I will look at the ads and I might have some input. I just had an input on one they're going to be doing for a gambling man um, and, you know, make a few tweaks. I do spend a lot of time on the covers. I do a lot of input on the covers and a lot of back and forth with the publishers on that because I know that I, Covers for me are important. It's the first thing somebody sees, I want them to. I want them to be as good as the story, really, because it represents the story on the, on the very first page. But you really have to pick your battles. I tell aspiring writers, don't abdicate your career to somebody else. Nobody will care more about your career than you. So uh, you can delegate, but don't abdicate. Um, because at the end of the day, if you abdicate, you're going to wake up five years from now and ask yourself, what the hell happened to my career? Um, yeah. You have to sort of be on top of it at the same time and allowing people to do what they do. But when the decisions are very important decisions and critical and you need to have input and you need to have the background and have done the study and the knowledge about the industry in order to get really good feedback, because that feedback is going to be critical to your career. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I ask this question sometime since you have reached this milestone of 50 books. Uh, we just reached a milestone this month of 200 podcast episodes with authors. So uh, you're, you're part of that group. Uh, thank you very much for participating. Yeah. And, uh, but, it, but here's the question. Uh, if you could tell your younger writing self, something that person who is struggling to write that first novel while you're practicing law, something of value that you've learned, um, you know, and, and since then, could you boil it down to anything in particular? Absolutely. I, 99% of the time people will want to sit down and write a book. 99% of the people never finish it. They write 20 pages, 100 pages, and run out of gas. Why? <clears throat> they picked the wrong subject to write about. And what did they pick? Um, they picked the trend. I can't tell you when Jurassic Park came out, because back then I was, I was you know, writing some screenplays and stuff. Every script that was pitched to Hollywood after Jurassic Park had a T-Rex in it. I don't care if it was a romantic comedy. It had a T-Rex <laughs> rumbling down the hallway. And when the Da Vinci Code came out, every book was about code. Why? Because people thought, hey, you know, that made a lot of money, got made into a movie. That's what I want. You know, the problem is that all those people had no interest in those subjects. Yeah. That lack of interest came through in the story, the plot, the characters. And it was just drudge and ended up on a sludge pile. Nobody read it. Nobody bought it. Nobody got it. Mm -hmm. You have to pick something that you actually have an interest in. I absolute powers of my first novel. Why did I have an interest in that? Because I sort of based that it was the, the president being a bad guy, having an affair. And it just destroyed lots of people's lives. I wrote that book because I was fascinated by Camelot and Kennedy. So my mind was, you know, Kennedy had a lot of affairs when he was a president. What would have happened if something had gone terribly wrong or one of his mistresses was killed by the Secret Service? I was fascinated with that subject. So I thought, you know, how many careers and lives are tied to the presidency? A lot. So I was so into that book. It, it took me three years to write it because I was working full time as a lawyer. And you know how, how hard that is. Mm -hmm. But I would go down in the middle of the night to write those pages just bouncing down the stairs because I was so in love with the subject matter. If I had picked dinosaurs, <laughs> you wouldn't be interviewing me right now. Okay. That's all I'm saying. So you've got to pick something that's going to give you enough gas in the tank that you finish it. 
And if you yeah. don't want it, and I, and it sounds simple, but I, I swear to God, 99% of the people who, who want to try to write a book pick the wrong subject. Yeah. And has David Baldacci ever experienced rejection in the literary world? Well, early on, lots of my short stories were rejected. Lots of my screenplays were rejected. Absolute Power was the first novel I ever wrote. Um, luckily, that one was not rejected. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, and just a final thing here is with all this experience you've developed now writing books, uh, is there something that's, uh, you know, that's become easier for you as a writer, but then is there something that still you, you have to work on a little bit or you have to really focus on in, in the work that you do? Is something easier and something a little harder in what you do? I think uh, easier is that I know as I'm going along in the story that I realize a lot of the stuff that I'm writing, I'm going to cut out later, but I have to write it just because I have to get it out of, out of my system and let it vent a little bit. Um, that, that has gotten easier over time. I sort of can pick my markers and I know the ending may not, I, I may write a book and have, I call it a pen ending. I know it's not going to be the actual ending, but I want to send it up to people so they can read the rest of the, of the manuscript knowing that I'm still thinking about the ending. You know, what's always challenging and what's always hard is to the day-to-day -day delivery of the story. Uh, some days it's just not there and it's just not coming and you realize it and you get frustrated. And even after all these books, I still do where, you know, the ideas that I want to put down on, on the paper and on the page just aren't coming that day. Um, and I've gotten a little bit better about working through that frustration and knowing that I have to go out and think about it some more and it will come eventually, but it still tends to be very frustrating even all these years later. Do you have like a man shed you go to or a basement you go to to ride on a regular basis or what? I'm a planes, trains and automobiles kind of guy. So I'll okay. no perfect place to write for me. The perfect place is in my head. I've written, there's a little Greek restaurant in North Virginia near my office. I go there all the time pre COVID and a little back table and with my laptop or my manuscript pages. And I've written hundreds of pages while people have been eating and slurping and crunching and talking right next to me. And it's just great. <laughs> well, it shows in, in the volume that you put out that you can really just do it no matter, no matter where you are. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book, David. It's a, it's a fun book, a gambling man. It takes you back to a time that, uh, you know, you might be flipping through those uh, TV channels on a Saturday morning or something or Saturday afternoon. And you run across one of those Humphrey Bogart uh, type noir movies and it kind of sets you back and, and you're almost kind of laughing at some of the dialogue you know as you go along was that part of what you were trying to do here as well absolutely because it, when you're talking about such a generational divide between you know lots of things in society have changed yeah. and when i was growing up you know the tv shows that i would watch in the you know 70s and 80s i go back now and i watch some of them like good lord <laughs> you know, these were awful and awful and they were just sexist and homophobic and, and you know, just terrible yeah. stuff. But that shows that society at least keeps progressing and things keep changing. So yes, when I was writing some of these lines of dialogue and some interaction, particularly between men and women, um, they were, you know, funny in a weird kind of way. I, you know, I was just doing a bit of research with this new book and I didn't realize until it was till like the 1970s in this, in this country where women could actually get a business loan that wasn't co-signed by a man. Uh, yeah. um, that one I didn't know. Um, same with a mortgage. You know, single women couldn't buy a house, you know, like in the 40s and 50s and 60s. They had to have a male cosigner or else they had to rent, uh, which just kind of blew me away. So that's that's not ancient history. That's recent history. Yeah, well, that you know, my great-grandmother started a hotel down at Riceville Beach called the Landis Hotel in the 1930s and had to get a, a, a politician to sign, you know, the loan for her. But uh, 
they never would reveal to us the name. So I think there might be a dark past there somewhere. Who knows? Who knows about? Maybe that's a story I need to look into or for, my, for my next book or something. You know. But right. uh, well, look, David, I want to thank you. Uh, generous your time. I know you got. You're very busy. You're out there, and uh, I want to thank you for sharing your story and this great book with uh, our listening community here, the Sean Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Have a great day. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.